This is KZYX, Philo, 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits, and Ukiah, 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. Good evening, and welcome to The Fish Files. The fish are out there. A special series of the Ecology Hour. I'm Anna Halligan, and tonight I'll begin with a brief summary of the current salmon run. And um, I'd like to talk a little bit about some recent science that was in the news. So we are in water year 2021, and to date we have only accumulated about 2.67 inches of rain. So our rivers are still low, uh, but salmon are running. There are various monitoring efforts that are operated up and down the North Coast. Um, I like to keep tabs on a few in the eel and then here locally. So I'll start with a summary of um, a monitoring effort that's in the lower eel river. This monitoring site relies on a sonar camera, which is placed in the river and then takes photographs of fish as they pass. Salmon run when the river, at the point where a river has a really pronounced rise and then an initial fall in its hydrograph. And so on the lower eel, The main pulse of adult fish that came through, and and smaller sized fish, which were soon to be um, Jack Chinook, occurred during the week of November 18th. The greatest number of fish observed was 189 adults and 54 jacks. And that actually was the highest total number of fish counted for a 24-hour period during the project operations over the last two-plus years. Steady numbers of fish continue to pass by the camera throughout um, November. And at this point, about 500 adult fish have been tallied with an additional 134 jacks. All of this information is preliminary. um, And we did receive quite a bit of rain in the early days of December. So it's likely that there was another big pulse of fish that passed the camera then. Moving upstream to the Van Arsdale Fish Ladder, uh, over the last week, there was a total of 12 Chinook salmon that ascended the fish ladder, and that brings the total Chinook count to 24. And then here on the coast, I've heard reports that the sandbars are beginning to open. It's open at the 10 Mile River, and fish are moving upstream. I don't have any um, exact numbers for the fish in the 10 Mile. I did hear that there, aren't, there haven't been a lot of fish observed yet. Um, but we also have a monitoring station on the south fork of the Noyo River at the old egg collecting station. And just last week, they, fo- they were able to catch their first group of coho moving upstream. They trapped 11 coho. There were three females, five males, and three jacks. I also want to talk a little bit about some um, recent news about salmon. 
Um, a few weeks ago, I actually got an email from our program manager at KZYX, and um, one of the listeners very generously um, shared a message about a recent phenomenon that's been reported to exist um, from Northern California to British Columbia. And so there's this, um, there's been some mysterious salmon die-offs, and it's really stumped biologists and toxicologists for decades. Um, There's been numerous testing. They ruled out pesticides and disease and a myriad of possible causes, such as hot temperatures and low dissolved oxygen. But now, after about 20 years of investigation, researchers in Washington State, San Francisco, and Los Angeles um, have identified a very poisonous yet little-known chemical that's related to a preservative used in car tires. So this chemical is just one of a vast number of contaminants that wash off of roads whenever it rains, particularly during the first rains of the season. There's basically a huge pulse of um, storm water, and it includes trillions of microplastics, heavy metals, um, pesticides, um, and other chemical contaminants, and they rush down our drains and into our creeks and then ultimately into the ocean. And so what happened is um, in the Puget Sound in Seattle, um, there's been significant investment in restoration to the urban streams of Seattle. And um, they were having success in having coho and other salmon return to those streams. But when it would rain, more than half, and sometimes all of the coho, would suffer a sudden death. So as I mentioned, scientists have been studying this for years in Washington, and they've been looking at dozens of streams, they're searching for patterns, and they were comparing samples from pristine creeks to those in more urban areas. They were able to narrow down that the primary issue was stormwater, And then they looked at creeks that were near busier roads. And finally, they were able to uh, determine that this was tied to the wear and tear of car tires. So these researchers soaked tire bits in room temperature water for about 24 hours. And in that time period, like 1,500 to 2,800 chemicals would leach out. And um, using high-resolution mass spectrometry, the team was able to identify and analyze each of these compounds. What they found was that the deaths were related to a chemical called 6-PPD, which is essentially a preservative to keep tires from breaking down too quickly. When the compound 6-PPD hits the road and reacts with ozone gas, the chemical transforms into multiple new chemicals, including a compound known as 6-PPD quinine. I might be saying that wrong. There isn't very much known about this chemical compound, but it does appear to be very toxic, um, even at about one microgram per liter And it doesn't degrade as quickly as the original um, compound, 6-PPD. So it still remains unclear how exactly this chemical kills coho salmon. Um, It may be doing something to the lining of the salmon's vascular system. But 
we know that once coho are exposed to the um, converted compound after the, the initial compound breaks down, salmon begin to breathe really erratically. Um, it's kind of like they're gasping for air and they lose their equilibrium and start spiraling in circles. They're no longer able to stay upright and eventually they just drop to the bottom and they die. So that certainly is a bit of an eyebrow raiser for those of us working in salmon recovery. But, you know, the, the good news is now we know what it is. And when you can find a, a kind of causal link like that that's controllable, then you can set out to try to make change so that that no longer becomes an issue. Now let's turn to an interview that I recorded uh, this past July. Um, I wanted to learn more about what the Cato tribe of the Laytonville Rancheria has been up to in the 10 Mile Creek watershed. So I was able to have a conversation with Emily Luscombe, the environmental director for the Cato tribe, and Fred Simmons, the tribe's environmental technician and restoration specialist. And our conversation began with an overview of their monitoring efforts in Cato Creek and the 10 Mile Creek watershed. The, the tribe has been working recently with the State Water Resources Control Board and AmeriCorps on a flow monitoring project. Traditionally, the tribe had a USGS stream gauge that was running while the stream gauge is still there. At the moment, the tribe didn't have the funds to continue with that because funding for monitoring projects is really difficult. There's been a history of diversion issues upstream from the tribe, and so the flow monitoring is really important to determine the best ways to restore the stream for the salmonids and the lamprey, and that's one of the main goals that the tribe has. This is a coho-bearing stream. We've been involved in groundwater monitoring as well, where we're monitoring the shallow groundwater to improve the groundwater model. And we are also working on the stream monitoring. So that is not just the flow, but the basic parameters. So we're looking at the things that do impact fish in the stream, such as the dissolved oxygen, the temperature, the turbidity, um, the pH. And we have some continual monitors that are in the stream and some continual monitors that are in some shallow wells. And those are also telling us conductivity. There have been some issues with toxicity that is coming from leachate from the landfill, which is next door to the rancheria. And so that is looking to see how that is impacting and where it's coming on. We haven't found as much of that in the areas that we have restored for salmon, but it is an issue here. And so there's a lot of different monitoring projects that are going on right now, and we're working with the state to try and increase the monitoring here and to have some projects that go across the boundaries so that there's not a tribal set of data and a state set of data, but that we have more cohesive data for the area. And that goes both with the flow monitoring and with the toxicity. The flow monitoring project is something where we have the monitoring occurring here in partnership with AmeriCorps and the State Water Resources Control Board, but they're also monitoring other places throughout the 10 Mile Creek watershed, and they're looking at the restoration capabilities and the stream capabilities for salmonids. Great. You know, and this summer is a pretty interesting year to be monitoring stream flow because we are experiencing drought conditions and several communities, and I think Leightonville is actually one of them, have made drought declarations. And so I'm curious, are you, is that what you're witnessing too? Is stream flow a lot lower right now than it would be 
typically during this time of year? Not only is it a lot lower, um, but normally we will always be able to measure some sort of flow. And although in the riffles you can see a tiny bit of flow in the street right now, the flow is actually so low that it is coming up as no measurable level as of Tuesday evening. And the week prior, we were able to at least get a very minimal flow measurement, and now we are down to no noticeable flow, no measurable flow. And is that something that happens with this creek? Does it go dry in the summer, or or is this really abnormal? This is pretty abnormal for it to have no flow, and it is connected. There's not a loss of connection between the pools, but there is a loss of flow. Gotcha. Yeah. And that has so many impacts for fish, because if there's not enough water in that riffle, then they're not going to get the food that they need to come down the creek to the pools where they generally, you know, juvenile fish are rearing. So, Or the dissolved oxygen to breathe. Exactly. Yes, and it, and, very, it affects everything. Yep. Sure. Yep. Exactly. And, and the lower the flow, the higher the temperatures, which will also get above the ideal temperatures for rearing juvenile salmonids. So what, uh, when, when, with the monitoring data that you've collected, you know, how does that help guide you with some of the restoration work you've been doing? And then, you know, obviously could you describe some of the restoration work that you've been doing as a result of the information that you've gathered on the ground? Well, I can give some more general stuff about what we're doing and analyzing with the data, but I'm going to let Fred speak to the restoration work because he did the expert restoration work that occurred here. Um, so when it comes to the data, we're looking at areas where the riffles and pool formations have been degraded so that there is less oxygen, higher temperatures, things like that, so that we can look at and see which areas are prime candidates to restore, you know, to put in some pools, to put in some woody debris, regain those riffle structures. So we're looking at temperatures. We're looking at that. We're also looking at pH to make sure that we don't have any other contaminants that we don't know about that might interfere with a restoration effort. And we're looking at turbidity. Um, we're looking at turbidity in the water to see how much sediment is coming off during storms versus what the background sediment coming off into the stream is. But we also look at things like the embeddedness of the cobble so we can see how much sediment is in the area and whether or not the salmonids and the lamprey can lay their eggs in the reds without suffocating them with the sediment. Because there's some areas that used to be all cobble in the streams in this watershed that are now filled in with a lot of sediment. And so that needs to be improved through fixing the areas that are eroding and taking away those new sources of sediment so that there's areas for them to lay those eggs and have them hatch. So with the sediment that is coming in, I mean, is that, so that's a common issue throughout the county and really the entire North Coast. And do you feel like a lot of that sediment is the kind of the result of um, historical land use and, um, and, and certain practices that have accelerated the um, kind of uh, rates of sedimentation in our streams? Well, historical land use definitely contributes to it. Um, the sedimentation can really increase from things like road building, some of the farming and ranching techniques that exist, and logging has historically been a great contributor to sediment in this area. Those aren't really occurring anymore. 
but a lot of the streams were degraded and then not improved again. And so there's a lot of work to fix some of that. There's still some issues in terms of where roads are and things like that. The other thing that we need to consider when we're talking about sedimentation too is not just historical land use, but the impacts of climate change because we're getting much drier periods with the droughts. And so you lose the capillary forces in the soil that help hold it together when that happens. And you have vegetation die off, which also helps hold the soil together when you have live vegetation with the roots. So you're creating more unstable soils when you have extended drought periods. And then with climate change, you're having less precipitation overall, but you're having more of it in smaller events. So you're having a much higher velocity of runoff. And so that can really erode the streams more as well. So climate change is definitely a factor in some of the current erosion that's occurring. Yeah, that's a really good point. I'm glad you brought that up. But it is true. I feel like so much of the restoration work that's happening is is really um, an effort to kind of address the conditions that, you know, exist today as a result of some of the historical land use practices um, that were used around the area. And, and, and in a way, it's trying to kind of push the regular process that a stream would take. But we are in this position right now where, like you mentioned, we have now a, a, a different climate regime that we need to account for. And we have these endangered species that may not be able to, to um, recover within the time frame that it would take for our streams and rivers to do that themselves. And yeah. So, Fred, um, we yeah. were curious if you could tell us a little bit about some of the restoration projects that you've been involved in on the Rancheria and, and it's kind of help explain not only just the work that you're doing, but... Um, what inspired you to do that work, and then what you have seen since those projects have been constructed? Well, uh, I believe the main, one of the main concerns was the fact that uh, uh, losing of uh, a prime um, habitat area due to sediment and uh, the return of uh, salmon and, and steelhead um, uh, you know, I've noticed over the years that, you know, in some areas there was plentiful spawning bed areas with great cobble and, uh, and, and deeper pools. And, uh, they, and they just kind of declined and the pools got shallower and washed out. And then and the, the creek, uh, the whole creek bed raised up, you know, quite a bit noticeable on our, uh, in certain areas that, and then uh, the, just totally destroyed the, the the sanctuary for these these uh, salmon and steelhead. So what we we decided to target these areas and uh, try to create uh, like uh, large weird debris jams on on side channels and to, uh, try to to help the the creek uh, heal itself and, and to, to create deeper pools again. And, uh, and and push out the uh, high sediment loads in these areas. And we we used all natural, uh, uh, you know, 
uh, fiber uh, jute nettings, and um, and we 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 rearmored the banks with uh, large boulders in some areas, revegetated with willows, hundreds of willows, uh, and native native grasses. Um, and we try uh, we try to incorporate. We we've got some of our plans from the uh, the Fish and Wildlife Book of Restoration. I don't know if anybody has that, but it's a pretty big book. Uh, so we kind of went off of some of their designs and then incorporated into uh, the Cotto Creek. And, and what happens is, like over the years, we try to make it uh, when everything comes back to its natural state. Uh, you know, it, it's almost like there was no uh, human influences in these areas, which is nice. And that's what we wanted to accomplish. And uh, and also we I've worked with the uh, MCRD, the Manistee County Resource Department, was helping us on a, a large wood debris side channel a redwood log uh, jam site for to create uh, um, to create dour and, and and develop uh, deeper pools in certain areas that were just flat lined. Heavy, I mean, shallow, like in high flow events, just it was what the creek was doing is creating real fast and narrow chute, and and it, it just carries everything out. So we we uh, targeted about seven sites with uh, large uh, redwood log uh, anchoring systems on on the side cha- on the side channels, and. Uh, it seemed to work. I noticed after after a year they were in place that uh, that the fish were actually going up underneath these redwood logs and just sitting there, you know, away from the high flow of the channel and fast moving. So they kind of got a thing to like it. So I, I feel that that is a success. Yeah, it's a good feeling when you see those fish by your wood structures. I always get oh, yeah, giddy they, they after. And hang out, you know, and then they, you know, take a break there for, you know, sometimes half a day, and they move on up on their run, you know, their mission. So yeah, yeah, and then it's kind of almost a sure bet if you can find a, a large redwood or a fir in a stream channel. It's like almost assured that you're going to find some juvenile fish hanging out there, which is nice. Yeah, such a good indication of a habitat that hasn't been disturbed for a while. Yeah. Yeah. And and even those pool habitats kind of change over time. Like we've done some post-project monitoring of certain wood projects, and we'll see, you know, some years those pools scour to like incredible depths, and then other years they fill in a little. But they're always still providing habitat. Um, and so what I've kind of gleaned from those experiences is just that, like, the more wood that you can get in the channel, the more opportunities that you can create to break up those habitat units. So not all of those fish are competing for the same resources in the same pool. Like, you will be creating more habitat, which in turn should uh, result in more fish, Right. So I know you do a lot of fisheries monitoring too, Fred. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about some of the types of fisheries monitoring that you're doing. And again, uh, maybe highlight if you if you have um, been able to kind of discern any trends with from those monitoring efforts. I'd be curious to hear about that too. Yes, yeah, so over uh, we've been 
trying to do some fish counts, but due to the lack of staff, so I've been just going out by myself and targeting, you know, the uh, known spawning bed areas, and uh, and and you know because it it just you know like I said, our stream bed is almost a mile long, and it takes a little bit to maneuver on foot. So I just you know try to target the uh, known areas of, of that I know of. So uh, what I do is try to do a fish count and, and you know, kind of sit in one area and what, uh, where I know they're at and where they're going to run so I could get a better count. But over the years, it seems like they've been the, the high, high uh, uh, weather storm event. It seems like they're moving. The trend seems to be uh, they're up. They move up, spawn, and go back within that time frame, so it's really hard to get a good count, you know, while while the uh, the creek is clear, because they're they're moving a lot more when it's a higher flow, and it's harder to get any kind of a, a definite count. But the numbers have declined yeah. from what I've been seeing, so it's, it's really hard to you know to, to do it unless you're doing it you know a lot. So uh, right. right. Yeah, well, you know, it, we've been, because of the last two years, due to maybe it is climate change or something like that, but, yeah, the water the water gets real dirty. It, take, it, it actually clears up in, a, like, a couple of days. But within that time frame, you know, they could be up and back sometimes, you know. And it's, uh, it's, it's kind of strange because usually you'll see, uh, well, sal- salmon, they come up here and, and spawn, and then, you know, that's it for them. But uh, the, I haven't even seen any carcasses, though. Usually when it does put it up, you'll see a carcass floating down or laying at the bottom of a pool sometimes, you know, or on the bank, you know, if the otters didn't get them. But uh, it is kind of strange because usually you'll see a lot of steelhead that come up spawn, and then, uh, you know, they'll go back during the instance. It's kind of strange over the past few years that I haven't even seen any going the other opposite direction back to the ocean of stealing at all. So that's, that's one thing I wanted to note that, uh, that I'm not really sure. But there are little juveniles and, and that are uh, starting to uh, pop out here and there. So there is some in, in our system, which is good news. But besides... Salmon, uh, uh, we can't really, uh, I'd have to do a, a snorkel dive and in a pool, a few pools around on the system to uh, get any of those data for that. Like I said, it's been mm-hmm. like almost two years, though so I've been in the water here, so it's, uh, I can't really give you a definite answer <laughs> but they right. are in decline for sure. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's hard I mean, because there's funding issues and um, personnel issues with getting enough people together to do that work right now. So it has made it a little bit more difficult than it was in the past. Um, we did see some, not this week, but last week, we did see a couple of juvenile salmonids um, with like steelhead that were in one of the pools when we were doing yeah. the flow measurements. Um, yeah, but definitely fun. in that same spot last year, we saw considerably more than what I saw this year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I yeah, mean, fisheries monitoring is challenging on a 
when when you do have lots of funding and personnel, <laughs> just because the fish are challenging to monitor, particularly steelhead, um, and and it is very difficult. I mean, there because it takes so much um, manpower to get out there and walk the creeks, and you know, there's a lot, and there's lots of different ways that you can monitor. You mentioned a few. Um, you know, carcass surveys, red surveys, snorkel yeah. surveys, and then there's, you know, a really labor-intensive trapping. And there's even now, you know, pretty high-tech um, types of um, tagging that can be, uh, tagging efforts that can be employed. Um, but one thing that we have, like we, the collective we, I would say, like, you know, the group of people that are um, working on various monitoring efforts in the county, one thing that we've noticed, um, particularly in the last few years, is that we're getting more rain later in the season. And so those steelhead are coming up, it seems like they're coming up a lot later than they used to. And there are even some reports of adult steelhead coming up. And this isn't like completely outside of the range of normal for them, but like coming up in April and May and, and um, establishing their reds. So you yeah. can imagine, Not you know, what that does. Yeah, and that's... That. That's the way I feel also that they're they're they're, uh, they're changing their their instincts of when they're supposed to be be uh, moving into the system. It seems like it's getting it later, like I said, and also that the steelheads are usually their runs are end in April. But you know, like I said, they're uh, had people call me, you know, say just this last week where they're running uh, up north of here. You know, certain things. So it is um, like a spring run for steelhead. So. Right, and that I mean that in itself poses some challenges because if we don't like this is a great exemplary year where if we don't get enough rain and the steelhead run late, then those juvenile fish are kind of getting. Uh, the short end of the stick because they're they're rearing in conditions and this is Emily you pointed to this earlier that are really almost in, that can be lethal for them that are really yeah. challenging um, and and then I even in I think it was April I was up in the Navarro and I saw and, the, and by then the the mouth of the, the the Navarro estuary had closed and I saw an adult steelhead in the channel so it it, it had come up to spawn, but it, it, now it could not leave. And now there's portions of the Navarro in that same area that are running, um, you know, pretty close to subsurface. So I wonder what happened to that poor steelhead <laughs> that yeah. was that could survive a summer in, in the river. It has the life history to do that. But when we're experiencing drought conditions, just to think about the stress that that fish is probably going through. I mean, it's, it's, that's it's a challenge. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. On the note of steelhead, though, I've noticed, like, when I was really doing the heavy, heavy uh, counts on, on steelhead, that I noticed uh, that we were getting a lot more jacks, like the young steelheads that are coming in uh, a year earlier or so before they're supposed to, you know, and it was, I was wondering how come they were so small and they were so 
come to find out, you know, I got got to looking up, you know, more more into what or why these steelhead were spawned. They were just, you know, they were young adults, you know, that usually don't come into the system this early. Usually they wait another year. But uh, and we were getting high numbers of jacks and that are coming up to spawn. That was uh, kind of kind of a strange thing too, because uh, usually we don't see that many in our system anyway. Yeah, that is interesting. It kind of you know begs the question of like why are they doing that? And then for yeah, yeah, for any yeah. of the listeners that yeah, sorry, uh, for any of the listeners that don't know, you, I mean you did a good job of describing it, Fred. But you know a jack is um, it's a male salmon that isn't reproductively mature yet. Um, so, and, and so it is like a lot smaller than, um, adults, but it has made a trip to the ocean. Um, so it is, uh, it is, you know, it, a rainbow trout and a steelhead are basically the same species. So sometimes yeah, yeah, the, yeah. <laughs> the discerning factor is whether they went to the ocean or not. So it has molted and it has gone in the ocean and it comes back, but it's, it's not quite ready to, um, participate in the reproduction cycle. Yeah. Um, it, that's really interesting. Yeah, it was it was kind of noticeable after a while, you know, when I did get some clear water where I could actually see actual fish, but uh, then uh, I noticed that there was a, a higher number of coming in in, in the Cotto Creek system, and it was uh, it was kind of strange because you know usually in uh, normal years you know you'll get you know a handful, you know, four or five. Like, yeah, these numbers were way above that. You know, kind of strange. I don't know what... Yeah, you mentioned the the California um, Stream Habitat Restoration Manual, which is, um, yeah, it is. It's a huge document that was developed by the California Department of Fish and Wildlife to help, yes. to help restoration practitioners have kind of standards to follow um, with... Of, of specific restoration techniques. Yeah. And the department's actually in the process of updating that manual. I'd say that the science of restoration is, it's always been evolving. We're always learning more. Uh, but um, in particular, there's there's been a lot of new information and a lot of new kinds of restoration techniques that are being employed. And so the department's revising that. And one of the things that they're doing is... Um, changing some of the standards, like in particular for fish passage, so that restoration practitioners are thinking about other fish other than, than just salmon and steelhead, and primarily that's lamprey. And my understanding is that lamprey is a really culturally significant um, fish species for the Cotter tribe and for other California tribes. Um, so do, do you see many lamprey in your stream, in, in, in Cotto Creek now? And, and can you talk a little bit about the importance and the challenges with trying to um, restore habitat for salmon, but also for other native species that are really important? And, and lamprey are also an ocean-run fish. Um, so it is another anadromous fishery um, that is significantly declined from what its historical populations were. I would just start by saying that one of the major issues is that a lot of the funding only covers species that are listed. And because lamprey is not listed, a lot of times the funding doesn't cover lamprey. So people who are doing restoration need to really be aware 
of other species and how they might be able to alter their restoration to also assist them. Um, like there are certain instances in which a pool can be made a little bit deeper than would be necessary for salmonids that would then also make it viable area for raising the juvenile lamprey um, because they do need a cooler temperature even than the salmon over the summer. And I think that one of the things is it's becoming more understood. Lamprey are becoming more understood, but they haven't been studied very much. Their historical numbers weren't studied very much. It's a lot harder for them to even become listed because the data on them is a lot less. Um, For instance, we were told that there are nocturnal species, and then I was working on the Russian River, and it was just swarming with lamprey spawning in the middle of the day. And we were like, well, clearly they're not nocturnal because here they are out in the bright sunshine spawning. So there's just very little information on them, and that means that they don't get protected in the same way. Yeah, that's a really good point. I've been fortunate enough to see a lamprey, a Pacific lamprey, um, in Big Sur River building its red during the middle of the day, too, and actually around a bunch of people. And the people were... Yeah, we had 23 people in the creek. We were doing a bioassessment. They were not at all afraid of us. (laughs) Yeah. And, And I just think they're such a neat fish. Um, and, and you're right, there isn't a ton of information about them, but, like, the fact that they're um, juveniles, which are called amicetes, you know, they, they, they live in the stream gravels for, is it a year? I mean, it's... it's it, can be, it can be two years. It can be one to two years. Um, right. But the other thing is that there's also an issue because they have the sucker face, and people can misunderstand that. And I've had people come and bring me things and say, hey, look at I found leeches in the creek in the past. Right. And I was like, oh, no, please don't take them out of the creek. That's not leeches. That's specific lamprey. But because they were small, they were just very small juveniles about, you know, an inch and an inch and a half long, people saw the sucker face and they thought that they were leeches. Yeah. And I think that's in part where they get the name eel because they're not a true eel, but they are... And they are just a fascinating fish, in my humble opinion. <laughs> yeah, well, and I think that one of the things is that people don't realize that eels are actually only in the oceans and that the anadromous versions of what you would think would be an eel or lamprey, and they don't realize the differences in terms of, you know, how they're, I mean, they both have a sucker face, but their sucker face is different, um, and, you know, what they do for feeding, and they don't realize that the lamprey are cartilage and not bones, whereas eels have bones. Mm-hmm. And, and maybe this is, you know, just grossly obvious, but the Eel River, at my understanding, got its name because of lamprey, right? Because of lamprey. But I don't well, think that least, people initially that realized those were different species. Yeah. I think yeah, they just saw it, the sucker fish and thought they were just a variation of the same species, and they didn't notice all of the other differences that they had. And I think their skeletal differences are one of the biggest landmark Mm -hmm. differences. But it speaks to how abundant they must have been that the whoever, you know, whatever European person came and decided to rename that river the eel, that that they were so abundant that the river got its name today from that fish species. But even when I was a kid in the 80s, they were far more abundant than they are now. We saw them everywhere, and we saw the salmon everywhere. There were so many more salmon even in the 80s than today. 
You mentioned, you know, collaborations, and I think that's something that I've kind of picked up on from the conversations that I've had, um, the limited conversations I've had with you both, that, that, that the tribe is really working on collaborating with, with lots of partners, and I find that to be so important with this work. I don't think that there's any one entity that's going to be able to resolve all of these issues. Um, what, how has, you know, how has how have those experiences been for you, and 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 how do you see um, collaborations in the future um, evolving? Well, I was just say I think collaborations are good on a number of levels. You know, one they allow people to be able to leverage funds and be able to do more with grant money that they have. Um, they allow people to leverage knowledge, so everyone has a different specialist or someone with a different background that may be able to lend other information to a project. And so they take your scope and they broaden it beyond what you might have in-house. But I think also most importantly is the artificial boundaries that we have put on property lines. Those boundaries don't exist in ecosystems and in nature. And so being able to work on the watershed scale, which is the more natural scale of the ecosystem, really makes a lot of sense in being able to do better work. Yeah, absolutely. Um, in fact, there's some studies that show that if you can't restore 80% of a watershed, then it's not likely that you'll recover um, salmon or steelhead, that it really is required to think like a watershed, think like an ecological system and a habitat in order to um, collectively address all of the issues that may have impaired its ability to function under a natural regime. I, mean, I guess, yeah, the summary would, for me would just be that um, you have to take a holistic approach to funding, to restoration, to collaborations, and to the ecosystem. You've got to look at all the parts because nothing operates independently. So we've been partnering um, whenever we can with the Eel River Recovery Project and the 10 Mile Creek Watershed Association. And Part of the studies that they have done has shown that one of the major issues in this area in terms of flow and the ability to sustain fish is based on forest health. And that poor forest health because of past land use practices is creating a lot of the issues with flow in this area. So we're working with them on trying to uh, you know, give support letters and any other kind of support that we can for those forest health restoration initiatives. And so we're hopeful that in the future that will help. And this has been a very cooperative um, watershed to work with in that regard. Yeah, I agree. It's um, it's something that I'm really interested in as well. I A lot of my work is focused um, on industrial timberland. And um, I think the the kind of common thought right now is that, you know, the, these redwood forests were logged so heavily that we have created um, these forest stands that basically have trees that are virtually the same age or that are not that distant in age, and, and that the forests are, are, are pretty, um, as a result, are really dense. And there's uh, kind of a running theory that these younger, denser tree stands have a greater need for water than, say, like an old-growth forest might have. And there's a lot of conflicting science on that. 
Um, but there, I see there's kind of dual benefits to support forest health initiatives. I mean, one is that I think it's pretty well understood and supported by science that uneven-aged forests are healthier than even-aged forests, and, and that health is kind of ecological health. Like, it's, they're more beneficial to a wider range of species, um, and the ecological processes that guide those habitats can be maintained in a more sustainable way. But then, you know, we are um, always, and in the summer is not going to be any exception, always dealing with the risk of, of wildfires. And so there's extreme benefit to managing our forests um, from that perspective as well. Um, and I tend to agree with you that I feel like if we could get um, our forests, if we could restore them so that they're in a position where they can, you know, I think our forests are so dense now that um, we can't even introduce fire, you know, prescribed fires or things like that as a mechanism to help manage them, which would have happened in a normal ecological regime on a small scale. Um, so if we can get our forests back to a state where they can, um, you know, have more complex and different types of habitats and forest stands and um, so that they're able to withstand very small um, localized fires. Um, also so that we can have riparian areas that have trees that are of various ages. So we're getting natural tree fall into our creeks and not having to supplement them with wood in the ways that you have been involved in and then in the ways that other restoration practitioners are involved in. Um, I mean, it's, it's, you know, ecological principles, but that could be one of the greatest things that we do to try and recover fishery species and to maintain healthy waterways. Well, and I think it's also uh, important to remember that a, a forest that's going to be more resistant to a hotter, um, longer lasting crown fire is going to be one that's healthier so the healthier the forest is, not only is that better for the streams, but it's also better for fire protection because those trees are going to be less susceptible to burning. Um, but I think not just the age of the trees, but also the species. This area traditionally had a mix of conifer forests and oak woodlands. And a lot of the oak woodlands have been removed both for um, promoting the conifer growth for the forestry industry and also because people prefer the hardwood for um firewood. And a lot of the hardwood species have a harder time reproducing naturally with the invasive grasses because we now have grasses that have a mat cover instead of bunch grasses where the acorns can fall in between the grasses and have an area to germinate. And so it's I think really also important to start doing artificial germination of those oak seedlings and replanting some of those oak woodlands so that we have the diversity of species as well as age that is natural to the area. Yeah, that is, a, that is an excellent point to add. And even those annual grasses that got brought in, I think the idea is that they were brought in by the Spaniards for cattle grazing. You mm -hmm. know, the native grasses have a better ability to infiltrate water into our soils because yes. they have deeper and longer tap roots, um, and they're perennial. 
so they don't die every year, you know, when conditions are dry. They could actually tap into that groundwater and maintain a little bit of green, um, which probably... Well, some of them remain quite green throughout the summer, so they're more resistant to fire. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that... And and then the problem, too, with... Well, and I kind of brought that up, that it increases the amount of infiltration, but but then... The, the other side of that is that all of these annual grasses who have very short-rooted root, systems now increase the rate of runoff that occurs during storm events, which then increases that um, flashiness that we can see in our creeks and rivers where the, the stream will rise really quickly and fall really quickly. Um, and so we can't really attenuate those stream flows um, because we've actually hardened the landscape. Well, and the flashiness is an even bigger issue with the changes in precipitation patterns with climate change as well. So I think that we have to remember that some of the things that we can do in order to help adapt to climate change and mitigate some of its impacts, some of those things are going back to what was here in the beginning, taking out some of the invasive species grasses, putting in some of the ones that were there originally, you know, looking at where we have hardened the landscape for roads that maybe aren't being used, where that could be reversed. You know, looking at areas where there's parking lots that maybe could be impervious, you know, instead of being impervious pavement, could be the pervious pavement. And there's just a lot of different things that we can do with bioswales and other things like that to slow down the water cycle, keep more of the water into the land so that it recharges the aquifers and keeps the streams going a longer percentage of the year and restoring the ecological balance with the species. Yeah. Yeah. And there's so, there's like so many benefits environmentally from doing that kind of work, but there is also an economic benefit because like you said, like if we can address, um, I mean, we're, we're, we're all predictions state that we should expect to see more intense storms and therefore more flooding. <laughs> so any work that we can do to return our landscape to act as a better sponge should in turn help reduce the impacts and the economic um, potential, the, the maintenance issues that are associated with flooding uh, as a result. And I guess one other question I have is, like, you know, do you have any um, advice or recommendations or insight just on ways that um, restoration practitioners can become more involved with tribal entities on restoration efforts? I think a lot of it just comes down to finding out um, what tribes are in the area but not also what tribes are in the area currently, but what tribes historically were in an area and reaching out to them. Mm-hmm. Um, but sometimes, like I said, reaching out sometimes only occurs to a tribal chair. And I don't think that people are aware of how much mail and how many emails a tribal chair gets and how physically impossible it can be to actually go through all of those. So a lot of times it's a good idea to send it to the tribal chair, obviously keep them informed, but to also copy some staff on that who can evaluate whether or not that's something in the area that they work in and be able to bring that up to the tribal council with more information. That's great. That's really helpful. Yeah, I mean, we do have some entities who will call the office Mm -hmm. and ask who they should address things to. And I think that that's really 
helpful because some people will just send something not addressed to anyone or just addressed to chair or something like that. And a lot of those things that come through like that are junk mail. And so sometimes those things may not even get reviewed. So it's really helpful to actually just pick up the phone, make that phone call and find out who the right person is to talk to. So I commend you on your work and for dealing with the significant challenges that present themselves with, you know, even just, you know, it's hard enough to get the funds, but then when you get them, just managing those funds are pretty challenging too. Well, Uh, I think also too to remember the challenges of permitting. Yeah, that's what I was just going to say. Navigating that regulatory network is so challenging. (laughs) Well, and one of the the issues that occurs with that, too, is that um, with the tribe, say that you have an issue, and I've been in this situation before, and and we have a similar situation here, where one of your largest restoration issues is right on the boundary of the tribe. So then you have to coordinate with the neighbors to do restoration on that area. Um, but then you're also in a situation where you have to do CEQA and NEPA and all the state fed and federal permits, not just one or the other. So when you have a restoration issue on a boundary area, it makes it a lot more complicated and a lot more difficult to deal with. And then the federal funding will often only cover until the tribal boundary and state funding will only cover until the federal boundary. And you end up with all sorts of issues in dealing with that. And some state funding has sovereignty waiver issues that make it virtually impossible for a lot of the tribal tribal constitutions for tribes to be able to participate in that. So anything that lands on a boundary area has a whole nother realm of bureaucratic issues to get through as well. Yeah, that is challenging. And then I can see how you might have like, you know, yeah, like how a federal requirement might differ from a state requirement, but then you're subject to make sure that you comply with both. And then you're put in this position where you have to decide like, well, which one is more protective? And it's, it's really challenging. I think that's probably one of the hardest parts of this. um, It also adds, it adds a lot of um, financial uh, strain on a project as well, because you have to pay for the permits from both sides. Yeah. And on top of that, um, the federal and the state projects require monitoring for different species. So then you have to train monitors and pay monitors at different times to look for different species. I just wanted to say thank you for helping to highlight the fish because they you know, really need some help in this current climate. So that concludes my interview with Emily Luscombe, the Environmental Director for the Kato Tribe, and Fred Simmons, the Environmental Technician and Restoration Specialist. I'd just like to thank them both for their work towards salmon and steelhead recovery and also for their time. In honor of the salmon return, and since it is Christmas, and admittedly, since I am a fish nerd as well, I have revised the poem of The Night Before Christmas to share. "'Twas the night before Christmas, and out in the streams, all the creatures were drifting towards a long winter dream. The stream gravels were sorted by the largewood with care, and hopes that a salmonid would soon be there. Some eggs were already nestled, all snug in their reds, while visions of caddisflies swirled in their heads.' And the long redwood roots and mycorrhizae that wrap were just settling down for a wet winter nap. When suddenly outside there arose such a clatter that I knew right away I must get to the root of the matter. 
Away to the river I flew like a flash, tore open the truck door, and pressed on the gas. The moon on the breast of the new-fallen snow gave the luster of midday to objects below, when what to my wondering eyes should appear but a silverback salmon and eight jacks at her rear. When my eyes finally focused so lively and quick, I knew in a moment it must be a fish. It flashed in the water, plunged to the fathoms, and drifted off like the down of a parachute atoms. To the top of the riffle, to the tail of the pool, the salmon it danced like thread from a spool. As dry leaves that before the wild hurricane fly, when they meet with an obstacle, mount to the sky. Away to their natal spawning grounds they sped, with a belly full of eggs to a freshly made red. And then, in a buzz, I heard in the water the thl- the splashing and thrashing of many tailfins of daughters. As I focused my eyes through the turbulent torrent, flashes of silver and red filled the river without warrant. They were large and loud and fast and glossy. They schooled up in pools in a very large posse. They filled up the river in masses so thick, it seemed like a person could pass on their backs with no help from a stick. They forged up the stream like a train with no whistle. Away they all swam, and the water turned crystal. Alone on the bank of the river I stood, with only the sound of rain on my hood. As my shock and my awe slowly did temper, a feeling of joy started to pulse at my heart center. What a wondrous sight to observe and to hear, the honor of knowing the salmon are here. Home in the rivers where they first emerged, a life cycle continues, vitality resurged. And to those of you listening to this story of salmon and birthright, I say Merry Fishmas to all, and to all, a good night. And that concludes another episode of the Ecology Hour. Just a reminder that you're listening to Mendocino County Public Broadcasting listener-supported community radio. We also stream live at kzyx.org. Co ho 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 If you enjoyed this podcast, you can go to kzyx.org to find more shows and content like this one. While there, you can stream us live or check out our jukebox. And if you like what you hear, consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. We are Mendocino County Public Broadcasting, listener-supported community radio. KZYX, Philo, 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Woolets and Ukiah, 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. Thanks for listening.